The text is Isaiah 40, beginning at verse 1, read through verses 3. Isaiah is an Old Testament book. It's one we look to for Christmas messages, Christmas themes, Christmas words. Isaiah chapter 40. The day was August 22nd, and the year was 1741, when George Frederick Handel sat down at his desk in his tiny room on Brook Street and began to put notes on paper with astounding speed. He never left the room, the house. His manservant came and brought him food to return later to find that it was untouched and to find Handel staring out the window or bent over his music, writing furiously. After 23 days, he laid down his pen, put his manuscript in the drawer of his desk, snuffed out his candle, and went to bed for the first time. He had finished Messiah. The composition of that work was a moving task. His manservant said that one time he came, found him sitting at his desk, with, his, with tears streaming down his face. I did see, he remarked brokenly to the man, all of heaven open to me and the great God himself. And ever since that day, Messiah has, been, has impacted the church so that Christmas has a greater meaning than ever before. If you studied the text of Messiah you would find that he used both Old and New Testament scriptures. But particularly the 40th chapter of Isaiah, it is from that great chapter that I want to preach three Christmas sermons. Now I understand that no sermon that I'll ever preach will ever make an impact on anybody like Handel's Messiah. But to preach from this great 40th chapter is both an inspiration and a challenge. And the first sermon is under the title, The Comfort of God. Follow as I read. Comfort, O comfort my people, says the Lord your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Chapters 40 through 55 of Isaiah were written to people in exile. Slowly, little by little, they saw their nation break away and dissolve. And on the heels of that tragedy, Babylon came to destroy what was left. Jerusalem was in ruins. Her beloved temple was leveled. And across the miles, her best and brightest leaders were carried away in chains into exile. But that was a long time ago, before Isaiah 40 was written, a long time before that. A lot had happened in exile. Her children married foreigners. Grandchildren had strange accents. And many of her number had embraced the strange gods of the foreign land. 
And so the Hebrew found himself plunged into hopeless depression and despair. He tried to sing the Lord's song in a strange land, but it stuck in his throat. He looked with bewilderment to the future. He had questions about God and about himself, for he had lost everything. He lost his nation. He lost his family. He lost his temple. And his leaders were scattered to the four winds of the earth. Occasionally, messengers would come to Babylon to tell them things were no better. Jerusalem had not been restored. Scorpions and snakes and rubble was everywhere. And in the midst of this despair of the exile, one stood to preach, one among them, one like them. His name was Isaiah, and he preached this message. And it was his message that kept those people alive in exile. It was what kept them going there. Now, being a preacher, I want to know what he said. If there was one man who could preach a message, and by that preachment, by that message, people in the most adverse circumstances could stake it, stick it out and stay in there, I want to know what kind of message he preached. The first part of his message was a message of comfort. Comfort ye, my people, says the Lord your God. It means three things. Comfort my people means that God takes the initiative. God comes to our Babylon. I don't know whether you noticed in verse 3 he said, Clear the way, for the Lord is coming to the wilderness. To the most unlikely place to find God in the wilderness where the jackals howl and the wind blows. He comes to our Babylons. He comes to our heartache, to where we suffer, to where we Agonize. He comes to our problems and our pain. He comes to our suffering and our need. He comes to our hunger and despair. Just before I came in to preach this sermon, my telephone rang and I answered it. The voice of a man on the other end of the line. He said, I want to tell you something. I want to ask you something. He said, you don't know me, but I watch you every Sunday. And he said, I like you. He said, I want you to preach my funeral. He said, I'm at the point of absolute despair. I speak to that person perhaps right now as I pled with him, let me come and let's sit down and talk. There is no such thing as hopelessness or despair. God comes to our Babylons. God comes to our wildernesses. God takes the initiative to come across the miles that separate us from hope and to our despair He comes. Now I want you to know the impact of this to the Jew. For the Jew, to the Jew, God was this holy other. He was transcendent and fundamental to that holiness of God was apartness. Unapproachable was this God. They wouldn't even go where He was. And God abode in the holiest place. No man went there except the high priest. And they put little bells on his priestly garment so they could hear him move around in that awesome holy place where God was. And as long as they could hear the bells, they knew he was still alive. But if there was protracted silence, no movement, they would assume he died in this awful place where God was. And they tied a rope around his ankle just in case he died in there. They could get his body out. 
That was their concept of this transcendent holy God that no man approached. Don't even look upon the ark of the covenant he commanded. This same God marching across the wilderness to our Babylons. He comes. In this computerized age with its games and unemployment, he comes and he cares. Inherent in that word comfort is the word help, and God is our present help. Therefore we will not be therefore we will not fear. Inherent is that in that word comfort is the word encouragement. Is that what you need this morning? It's what that young man needed who called by telephone. What did you bring with you to this service this morning? Worry about some teenager? Fear that your social security is not going to hold out? A bad lab report? Diminishing spiritual resources? Is what you need this morning encouragement? I think sometime we need to be reminded that the encouragement he gives is not the, the um, everything is going to be all right, brace up variety. In the towers of London, there is this tapestry that depicts the Anglo, the, the, the French Anglo Wars of a thousand years ago. And one section of this tapestry, there's the picture of the French troops marching against the British. And the king, king of Normandy, William the Conqueror, he, he later became known, was among this group of soldiers marching against the Anglos. But he's behind them, holding a long, sharp spear, and he's prodding them and pushing them along. And the caption over that section of the tapestry is... King William comforteth his troops. That's great comfort. Pushing, he won't let me forget. And I find him out in Babylon coming to me to say, I'll not let your life be contented. You'll be miserable. I'll encourage you back to me. Inherent in that word is the word help is the word comfort, is the word strength. And so Jesus across the ages picked up the same theme. And when his disciples looked with despair to the future, he said, I'll send another comforter. And it's a combination of words to mean, to, to make strong or to make mighty. It does not have the key, uh, the, the weak connotation of a, of a warm, cuddly, warm blanket that you wrap around an infant. It's the kind of word that means to strengthen or to fortify. And so when the Holy Spirit came upon Samson, he slew a lion. And when, uh, when Dr. Luke in, in the ninth chapter of Acts talks about the church being comforted in the Holy Spirit, he was not talking about the power of the Holy Spirit to comfort and console and to soothe. He was talking about the power of the Holy Spirit to fortify and to make strong. And so he comes across our Babylons. He comes to our weakness and makes us strong. He comes to our discouragement and brings encouragement. He comes to our helplessness and brings help. I tell you, He comes. Are you listening over television? He comes to your wilderness, to the place you'd never expect to find Him. Comfort my people means, in the second place, that God speaks to the heart. The text says, speak kindly to Jerusalem. It's an untranslatable phrase in the Hebrew. There's no way for the Hebrew to translate it. It means to lay gently against the heart of another. It's an expression that is used of the tender affection and the loving concern of a lover to the beloved. 
And so God says to the prophet, you say it in the tenderest way you can ever say it. You speak with the whisper of a lover and you tell Jerusalem, you tell Israel, I love her. Do you know that? Israel didn't need to be skinned alive. She needed to be told that she was loved. Do you know that? Do you know this morning that God loves you? Oh, He really does. He loves you with a love no love has ever known. He loves you with a tenderness no mother has ever felt. He loves you with a strength no father has ever expressed. He loves you with a love of, that no child has ever known. He really does love you. Somebody said he saw a bumper sticker that, that, that said, Smile, God loves you. We, we've all heard that. They said the, the rest of it was, and considering what you've put him through, that's really something. <laughs> really is. Really something. Really something that God loves you. But you can't linger at the cross very long and at the stable without understanding that your life is something special, something of value. He really loves you. Jesus told us so. He told us that He loves us indiscriminately. He loved the self-righteous, rigid Pharisee. He loved the prostitute. He loved the publican, the traitor to His country. He loved the zealot, the super patriot. He loved people of His own nationality. He loved other countrymen. And when you translate that into modern terminology, it means that He loves the chairman of the Communist Party and He loves the chairman of the Moral Majority Party. He loves the KKK and he loves the American Civil Liberties Union. He loves the little Jewish boy walking down the streets of Nazareth. And he loves the Arab hijacker on the Achille Lara. He loves you with an indiscriminate love. He really does. I tell you, there's a world of love in those two little words, my and your, in verse 1. My people, I'm your God. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I still claim you. You're still mine. Look, folks, sin may separate us from God, but it never separates God from us. I still love you there in Babylon. I'm brokenhearted that you sinned the sin that caused your own captivity, but I have not abandoned you. And life really isn't worth living until we understand that we're loved and important to somebody and that we're not abandoned. Psychiatrists tell us that one of the things that cancer patients fear the most is that some point in time they'll be abandoned. Perhaps our nursery workers have seen it. Little children who are there and their parents may be taking a little extra time to get back and get them on Sunday morning and they see all their friends leaving, all the other mothers and daddies going and, and all of a sudden they realize that, that they're, all, they're by themselves there. They're left there alone and, and you can kind of see it in their eyes. Maybe a, just a flash, just for a minute, comes across their little minds and the thought is, I wonder if I'm forgotten. I wonder if I'm abandoned. The late Ozzie Nelson tells a story about his son Ricky who had a playmate named Walter. And he said, Walter came over one day and they was playing, throwing passes out in the backyard. And, and Walter uh, and, and Ricky said to his dad, said, Dad, boy, that's a great pass. Man, you've got a great arm. And Walter said, you really do, Mr. Nelson, but you ought to see my daddy's arm. Man, he can really pass the football. They sit down at supper table to eat. And, 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 and Walter said, Mr. Nelson, you really can carve the roast. Boy, you really know how to carve that roast, but you ought to see my dad carve roast. I mean, he can carve roast better than anybody I've ever seen. 
And Ozzie Nelson was thinking, boy, I want to meet this boy's daddy. He's really proud of his dad. I want to meet him. So when the boy's mother came to get him, he said to her, he said, I want to meet Walter's dad. I mean, he's so proud of his daddy. Walter's mother said, oh, is he talking about his daddy again? His daddy died when Walter was three. That's the way he handled it. But that's a, that's a fear, that's a trauma known not only to children. Let me tell you, in this age of divorce, millions of people go to bed at night crying themselves to sleep because of their, they've been abandoned. And don't forget those people in hospital beds and nursing homes who feel so betrayed and so alone and so abandoned. There's no trauma like that. There's no heartache like that. And so over there in Babylon, there was Israel thinking she was abandoned. I mean, she'd sinned against God and was driven into exile. And God said, say to Israel, I'm still their God. They still belong to me. I have not given up on them. I've not abandoned them. Speak to the heart. The message of comfort is this, finally. It's a message of forgiveness. Now I want you to wake up and get something that's absolutely exciting. Now, the old Harry just kind of stands up on the back of my neck when, when I go through this, just to read it. I want you to notice what he's saying. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended. Now to the Jewish nation, there was nothing any more precious than peace and nothing more elusive. Why, they so longed for peace that they put it in their greeting. They didn't say good morning or hello or goodbye. They said shalom to remind them that the yearning of their heart was peace. If you reach over, pick up your newspaper or turn on the television and you read about the conflict in the Middle East, it's just a replay of Israel's history. She's never known a time that she was not at war. Because of her strategic location between Asia and Africa, she found herself a military ping-pong ball, just bounced around by warring nations, and she lived and longed and desired for peace. It was an elusive thing. Tell Israel that the war is over. But I ask you, with whom was Israel at war? It wasn't the Babylonians. I promise you that. The Babylonians had already bent them to their knees and had carried them into exile. They'd already begun to intermarry with the foreigners and had grandchildren with strange accents. They weren't at war with Babylon. They were at war with God. And so God says, tell Israel that the warfare is ended. He's talking about justification. And that's what Paul means when, he, means when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We have been reconciled, he said, with Christ, with God. Therefore we have peace with God. He's talking about justification. The war is over. I heard R.C. Sprawl tell about the days playing stickball in the streets of Chicago. That was his domain. That was his turf. And he said he's just about ready for time for him to come up to bat when he heard sirens start blowing and horns start honking and people out falling out, flooding out into the streets, shouting and rejoicing. He said, I was just a little boy, but I remember it vividly. It was the announcement of VJ Day. War with Japan was over. No more rationing. No more putting those little flags in the windows. No more, no more sending of censored mail. The war was over. A time of celebration. He said, it can't compare with the day that I found peace with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. The war was over. I ask you this morning, 
Are you in conflict, enmity? You're an enemy of God if you do not know Jesus Christ. God said, I'll come to your Babylon and bring an end to the strife. That's not all. He said, tell her that her iniquity has been removed. Not only has her sin been forgiven, not only has there been reconciliation, but the sin has been removed. He's talking about sanctification. Not long ago, I was out visiting on Monday night and sat down and shared with a young man who had been forgiven of his sin, but had not forgiven himself, felt the burden of that guilt, and in our time of sharing, tried to help him see that when God forgives the sin, He removes it. It's just as if you'd never sinned. Her iniquity has been removed. Because, he said, look at that, because she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now what does that mean? I've preached the sermon that says that, that judgment begins at the house of God and those who are the most privileged of God receive the greater judgment. And I've used this verse of Scripture as a proof text of that, that we get double judgment because we're most privileged. That's not what that means at all. Let me show you what that means. When a man had a debt he couldn't pay, he had an obligation he couldn't meet, his creditor would take his debt and put it on a piece of paper, list every debt he couldn't pay. He was hopelessly in debt to pay, couldn't pay it. He'd put that list, he'd make out that list, and he'd nail it on the door of that man's house. It was a, it was a means of embarrassment and shame it was a constant witness to everybody. This man owes a debt he can't pay. And people avoided those debtors that couldn't pay. And they looked upon them with rejection and disgrace and shame. But suppose a benefactor, a wealthy man said, I'll pay the man's debt. Here's the money paid in full. The creditor then would go to the man's house take that list of those debts that he couldn't pay and he'd fold the paper, fold it in half and nail it at the top. He'd double, you see. He doubled for their sin. It meant that the debt was paid in full. That's what Jesus meant when in the darkness of Calvary stretched out there between heaven and earth, he cried, and that cry echoes down the Kidron Valley to this day. It is finished. It means that the debt man was unable to pay, hopelessly in debt, could not finish, could not pay. God took the initiative. By God's hand, He paid it all. Now when He healed, He didn't heal halfway. No leper ever came to him and said, See those spots? I think my leprosy is returning. When he taught, he didn't teach halfway. When they heard him the wisest, they came back to say, No man ever spake like him. When he paid the debt, he paid it in full. He counseled it. And I was getting ready this morning, lying in my bed, going over this sermon in my mind. And I remembered that glorious verse of Scripture. Listen to it. And when you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, 
having forgiven us all our transgressions, tell Israel, warfare is over. Having counseled out the certificate, listen to this Colossian passage, having counseled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us when people saw the debt we couldn't pay. They avoided us in shame. Having counseled out the the debt of consisting of decrees against us, and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And what God did? By His own hand, He took that debt that you and I could never pay and He nailed it to the cross of Calvary. Tell Israel she can have peace with God. Not just that. She can have the peace of God. Henry Kingsley has written some haunting lines and I want to quote them in conclusion. I really mean it when I say in conclusion. I know you tell those jokes about when I say in conclusion doesn't mean anything, but I really mean it. I need to tell you what this, these words are about. It's the picture of Magdalene, the sinful woman, standing, trying to get into heaven. And Kingsley calls it Michael's Gate. L- listen to this magnificent line. Magdalene at Michael's gate, turled at the pen. On Joseph's thorn, a blackbird sang, Let her in, let her in. Have you seen the wounds? Knowest thou sin? And the blackbird sang, It's evening, evening, let her in, let her in. I have seen the wounds. I know my sin. And the blackbird sang, She knows them well, well, well. Let her in. Let her in. Bringest thou no offering, said Michael? Not save thy sin? She is sorry, 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 sang the blackbird. Let her in. Let her in. And when he had sung himself to sleep and night did begin, one opened Michael's gate and Magdalene went in. And the one who must have opened Michael's gate had scars in his hand. And he came to Babylon and opened Michael's gate and let him in. Pray with me. Oh God, how thrilling is your word. How marvelous, how marvelous is the thought of thee, of your love of your grace and forgiveness and goodness. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Oh, what a Savior. I pray that those this morning, dear Lord, who are outside of grace 
on the outside of acceptance and forgiveness, on the other side of Calvary, might find him in their Babylon. Oh, right now, Lord, wherever they may hear these words, I pray that hopeless people, lost people, will look to Him who is our Savior, helper, lover, forgiver. This is my prayer in His precious name and for His sake. Now I want you to look. We have three invitations. Oh, listen carefully. I want you to come this morning if you've never experienced His salvation to be saved. He forgives your sin and removes it because He's because He's paid the debt for you. Would you come this morning to say, I want Jesus Christ's saving grace and salvation. By faith, I want to accept Him. Would you come this morning to join our church? Would you come today to say, I want, a, I want something better than my walk with God? I want something better than this. Help me to find a new way. Would you do it? While the choir leads us in a hymn of invitation, come while we stand, would you? Would you come? Would you want to come? Come on this morning. Would you come? as I am. We'll sing it together. Two stanzas. But there is something, listen carefully, there is something dynamic about 
the message of hope, the gospel of grace and love. It gives life. It gives hope. Now, now we can we can condemn people all day long for the things they've done, and 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 we should have God's condemnation reminded of us to us. But there is something glorious and dynamic about hearing a message of hope. And I sense this morning that there are those of us who who need a fresh walk with God and a fresh touch from the Lord, forgiveness of sin. Well, there are some folks here who need to join this church this morning. And I know there are those here who have never for the first time claimed salvation through Jesus Christ. Oh, I plead with you by the mercies of God that you do it today. This is your time to do it. And so while we sing this just as I am, that's what, that's what Magdalene did at the gate. She brought no sacrifice, not save her sin. And the mercy of God let her in. Let her in. Would you come this morning while we sing together this stanza? Come on. Come on.